We are at the end of 2 Timothy. I would encourage you to turn there if you have your Bible or the verses will be up on the screen. Um, this letter is one that we started at the beginning of the fall and uh, we've, we've been through a lot. It's not a long letter, uh, but it is a letter that is packed with insight for the church. Uh, for those leading the church, certainly, since it's from Paul to his protege, uh, younger pastor. Uh, but it's also been very instructive just for all of us in terms of what we're called to in gospel ministry, in terms of discipleship, in terms of how we should interact with each other and how we can keep the faith. That's been one of the main themes that Paul has been writing to Timothy, uh, that he wants for Timothy to, to remain strong in his own faith and be able to pass that on to, to others. And so even though Paul is nearing the end, he has had a lot to say. And that's been kind of up to last week, been really the, the content of the letter, has been uh, important things, uh, essential things that uh, Timothy has uh, needed to hear from Paul before Paul departs this earth. And so we've heard him exhort Timothy to, to strong leadership, to strong preaching, to, to maintaining the faith. Uh, but our, our passage today is a little bit different than those kinds of passages, because our passage today is, um, is more of a window into Paul personally, how he is dealing with his own situation, and what are the things that he is writing in these kind of final greetings. So it's instructive for us, because what we get to see is, is how does Paul, who is exhorting Timothy to keep the faith, how is he keeping the faith? What is sustaining him as he sits in this Roman dungeon and waits for death, and we're going to find uh, that he is sustained in his faith and that the things that he looks to are things that we can look to as well. Uh, so with that in mind, let's read the text and then we're going to pick out the, the two key things that are sustaining uh, Paul, things that we all, we all need to this day. So verse 9, he writes, Do your best to come to see me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila. And the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, for he was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends his greetings to you, as do Prudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And thus concludes Paul's letter. Uh, and as I said, two, I think, two main things that we see here in terms of what is sustaining Paul and uh, they are the people in his life and Jesus himself. Uh, but I'm going to phrase it this way, kind of as, a, as an instruction or a word for us. The first thing we see here in Paul is that we all need someone to lean on. We all need someone to lean on. 
I know you're all singing the song in your head because uh, it comes to mind. Uh, the Bill Withers song, 1972. I had to look it up. I'm not going to sing it, but uh, in that song is what we see here. The importance, the necessity of having people that you can lean on in difficult times. And with Paul, uh, in particular, he wants to lean on Timothy. Uh, there's a, a phrase that's repeated at the beginning and end. Uh, verse 9, do your best, he says to Timothy, to come uh, to me soon. And then in verse 21, do your best to come before winter. That's because uh, at winter, it's not just it was cold and he wanted his jacket, but uh, winter, the shipping lanes close down. Uh, the, the seas are too rocky, you can't really travel. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, who is like a month away, look, if you're going to come, you got to come soon, because I, if not, it's going to be too late. And if he misses the window before winter, probably it's, it, Paul's going to be gone by the time he gets there. So he's, he's saying clearly, Timothy, I, I want to see you one last time. I want to be encouraged. I want to be comforted by you. The companionship that he has with this young man is something that sustains Paul and that he, he longs for. And this is something that you see time and again for Paul. Really interesting uh, in Paul because he's a leader in the church. And so there's evidence uh, all over the place, even in this passage, that uh, he, he is very um, comfortable giving people assignments. Right, like practical, you know, things. Like I've sent, Christians has gone to Galatia. I sent, uh, you know, so-and-so to uh, wherever he said, all the different places, right? He's, he knows there's ministry to be done and he is uh, sending people. In fact, uh, Tychicus, he sends to Ephesus because he's calling Timothy to come to see him. So very practical, very like he's caring for the church. But you don't get the sense that uh, people feel used by Paul, I don't think. Even though he can be very strong, very direct, even though at the drop of a hat, look, you need to go on a month's journey over there to care for that church, there's a high degree of relational connection between Paul and the people in his life. And you see that because of, of the way that he's writing in this, in this letter, first of all, to Timothy, that he really wants to see him. But you see it in other places too. Here's a, there's a bunch of examples, usually at the end of Paul's uh, letters, but, but here's one that jumped out to me. This is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 5 to 7. Look at the kind of the language that he talks about uh, people. This time it's, it's Titus. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the, uh, the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. See, the comfort that it's a person. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. He's talking to the Corinthian church. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So at a time when Paul was downcast, right, feeling afflicted, the way that God encouraged him was by sending a friend. Sending Titus. And Titus encouraged him by saying, the, the church in Corinth, they, they can't wait to see you again, Paul. They love you. And, and Paul's encouraged. That's, that's how people are in our lives. That's what we should expect and what we should, what we should long for. And I think this is instructive for us uh, because of a couple things. I think there's a tendency for us uh, to use people uh, rather than to uh, be relationally connected in a deep way especially if we have any kind of leadership, right? Paul, leader in the church. And yet these people that he's engaged in ministry with, they, they really love him. They really care for him. They long to see him and he longs to see them. Uh, there's a part in, in Acts where he leaves the church in Ephesus 
and all the elders come, they're all, they're all weeping, they're all in tears, right? They're not just seeing him as a good leader who organized things well and taught us well, but they, look, they see him as a friend, as a brother, and this should be instructive for us, maybe, maybe even convicting for us that this is how we should see people. We, we need other people to lean on in this way, especially in times of difficulty. Uh, the other reason I think this is instructive, though, is that Paul is someone who would have had a lot of reasons to distrust people. He, he would have had a lot of reasons to not be so open and vulnerable and warm with the people in his life. I mean, you can even see in these, these final kind of greetings some of the things that people have done to him. Look at verse 16. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. So in a Roman judicial system, they had like a first pretrial thing where he was standing before the judge and then he'd wait to, for the final trial. That's what he's doing. But at that first thing, standing before you know, the authorities, no one showed up. Now, he, now there's some, some people had a good reason. There's a whole bunch of people, Crescens, Titus, uh, Tychicus, Erastus, they were on assignment, right? He sent them away, fair enough. Trophimus, he's sick, all right? He gets a pass. But there were other people like Luke, who he said is with him, but I guess didn't show up to the trial. And then all these others at the end, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, they were in Rome. They didn't show up either. Just think of how disheartening that would be. You've, you've been pouring out your life for the church, you're in prison because of the gospel. You, you, everyone knows Paul is the one who's been leading the charge, called by God, and, and all the people who are benefiting from your wisdom. Then when you are in need, and it would just be so great, you know, in that room to look and see someone, a friendly face, someone just gives you a nod, a smile, someone with you, there, there's no one. Paul knows what it's like to be disappointed by people, even people who are his friends, who didn't show up, right? He texted them, and it's been like weeks, and they haven't texted back, right? You know, you know what this is like, right? And yet, he doesn't seem to close himself off from people. I think that's the part that is, should be instructive for us. Even though we have reason to distrust, right? What's our natural response to pull back? Right? To not be in that kind of deep relationship because people are, are going to disappoint us. But that's not Paul. In fact, uh, Paul even had people who were not just disappointing, they were, they were hurtful. They, they hurt him. Look at uh, Demas, verse 10. He mentions him by name. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So this is not just a guy who left Paul uh, to go on a trip, a personal errand. Uh, this is someone who has abandoned, probably abandoned the faith, certainly the mission that Paul was on. And, and this was someone that Paul knew very well. Uh, in fact, he, he is mentioned, Demas uh, is mentioned in Philemon a few times, but Philemon 24, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So this was a guy that was on the inn, Right, inner circle with Paul, shouldering ministry together, close in relationship, a fellow worker. And now, instead of him loving the appearing of Christ, like we saw last week, he now is in love with this present world. And that is discouraging. That is hurtful. This would have been someone that Paul was, was mentoring, was leading, had probably helped him to understand the gospel, had been working together, trusting him, and now, and now he's gone. 
and not just didn't show up for the important day, but like is gone, gone. Like I don't, I don't want to follow Christ anymore. And you got to assume that Paul would have talked to them about this. He probably just didn't disappear, right? That's hurtful. Think of the emotional energy and the, and the strain and the worry, like this, this guy who is abandoning his own faith. Paul, Paul would have been heartbroken for him and for himself, and if you've been in that situation, you know the natural response is to be like, I, I'm not going to do that again, right? I'm not, I'm not going to get that close again, right? I'm going to still do ministry. I'm not, I'm not leaving the church, but I'm just going to, I'm going to put up some walls so that I don't come to the place of being able to be hurt by people around me. And yet that's not what we see from Paul, right? Paul responded very differently, even though people deserted him, even though people hurt him, he didn't close himself off from the people in his life. And I say that because of uh, another name that is here in this text, a name that you might have noticed if you know uh, some of Paul's history. That is the name Mark, uh, verse 11. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Now, if you know uh, Mark, you know there's another mention of Mark, probably the same guy, who um, caused some trouble for Paul. Uh, Mark was a young man, uh, kind of grew up in the early church, and kind of like Timothy, Paul at one point said, hey, Mark, why don't you come with me? We're going to go on a missions trip, right? Go and plant some churches. And at first, Mark was like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go. And then partway through, he was like, mm, I, I'm going to go back. And Paul was not happy about that. He, he, he was deserted. He was abandoned. Uh, and so Paul, for a time, was like, I, Mark, mm -mm. I'm not going to have anything to do with him or certainly not ministry. We know this because in Acts, there's another missionary trip. Paul, Barnabas, they're making their plans. And Barnabas is like, hey, let's get Mark. He's a great guy. And Paul's like, no way, not Mark. Look at what he, look what he says, uh, Acts 15, 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them. John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So he's saying, not that guy. He didn't make it, right? He abandoned us partway through. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed. They're both like, fine, I'll go that way. You go that way, right? Disagreement in the early church, even there. And clearly a hard-heartedness for Paul at that time towards Mark, right? Wasn't, wasn't interested in giving him another chance. Didn't why? Didn't want to put himself in a position where he's relying on this guy and then, uh, right, he flakes out again. Paul's like, no, I, I don't want that. But now years later, what do we see? Right? In his hour of need where he's feeling isolated, who does he ask for? Mark. Mark, he said he's useful. Useful doesn't mean like he can carry my things, right? Use, useful means he can be encouraging to me, useful for my soul, useful to help me in this time of, of sorrow that I would remain strong. This should be instructive for us. This, this should remind us that we do need people to lean on and some of those people may have hurt us at some point, may have disappointed us. And yet if we, are, if we have been transformed by the grace and forgiveness of God, then we also should be willing to show grace and forgiveness to others. That we shouldn't just circle the wagons harden our heart, protect ourselves from others who might disappoint us. It's not, it's not what we see in Paul. Now, we, we do see that Paul drew some lines. 
right? There were some, there were some people, one person is mentioned, uh, in particular, Alexander, uh, verse 14, right? Alexander, the coppersmith, uh, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Uh, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Uh, so Alexander is a name that uh, you might remember. If you remember his first letter, 1 Timothy, Paul wrote about Alexander. Uh, he, this is what he wrote, 1 Timothy uh, 1.19. By, by rejecting this, he's talking about faith, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Alexander was someone in the church, false teacher, leading people astray, rejecting the good doctrine. And so Paul at the time had to uh, push out Alexander and Hymenaeus for the good of the church, right? That people wouldn't think that what they're saying is true, but also for their good, right? It was, it was tough love in the sense that as you're pushed out of the community of faith, the hope is that you will learn not to blaspheme, come back in repentance, and that then they would be welcomed back. That's not what happened. Clearly what happened is that Alexander got harder, more re resolved in his wrongness and came back and caused more trouble, uh, caused more harm to Paul. Some scholars think that he's the one who informed on him with the Roman authorities and got him into trouble. Whatever the case, this is clearly not someone that Paul is giving a second chance to or, or kind of still opening arms wide and saying, you know what, we can, we can still make this work. He's saying, no, there's a wall up for you, Alexander. You're not, you're not welcome in the church, okay? I mean, if you come to repentance, certainly, but as you are, there's no way. And Timothy, watch out for him because he will cause you harm. So clearly, Paul, Paul is saying we do need a sense of discernment. But what I want us to notice is, is why Paul had this harsh stance towards Alexander. It wasn't because Alexander was just an abrasive jerk who he, Paul didn't get along with. It wasn't because, you know, they, uh, Paul they looked, they looked at him in a weird way across the lobby at church. And he was like, I don't like that guy, right? That guy's, he bugs me. It wasn't any kind of interpersonal squabble. It was because of why. Verse 15, he strongly opposed our message. What message? The message of the gospel. So, so Alexander was someone in the church and in Paul's life who was actively going against the truths of Christ. And that's a point where Paul says, no, no more. No, there is going to be a wall here. We can't be in relationship. If you, are, if you are speaking against, teaching against, leading people away from Christ, there's no way. You're going to be outside of the church. You're going to be outside of my life. That's the line. But notice that Paul doesn't allow people like Alexander to make him hard towards everyone. Right? He still loves people. He's still gracious towards people, even people who disappoint him. Right? You can imagine if Demas came back, right? oh, Paul, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. You need to pray for me. Would have been all love, right? all open arms. But Paul is someone who has experienced the grace of, of God and so is now leaning on people in a way that is vulnerable and warm-hearted. And I think it should prompt us to think about the way that we treat people. Whether we recognize the value that there is in actually having someone to lean on. And whether we have perhaps cut off people because they've disappointed us, because they've, they've hurt us, when in fact what the gospel would compel us to is, is, to, is to extend the hand of, of grace, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, because here at the end with Paul, there, there were people there 
that at one point he was at odds with and now, by the grace of God, they've come together and Mark now is a source of strength. And so, wouldn't it be tragic if there were people in our lives that God intended that we could reconcile and actually be, be close and lean on each other, but we're holding them at a distance because, because we're too hard-hearted about it. So Paul gives us, reminds us, we do all need someone to lean on, and it may even be those people who have hurt us in the past. So that's the first thing. He's being sustained by his friends, sustained by those that he's in relationship with. The second thing, though, the, the greater source of strength is, of course, Jesus himself. And I'm going to say it this way. Uh, we don't just need someone to lean on. We all need someone to rescue us. To rescue us. And I use that language because it's in our text, uh, the rescuing part. Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood by me, said Paul, and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. But you see the rescuing. And, and so clearly Paul is feeling quite confident that he will be rescued by God. But I think the important question we need to ask is what kind of rescue? What is it that... Paul is expecting to be rescued from uh, because I think there's actually two different kinds of rescue that are being talked about here. Uh, and that's partly because there's the word rescue is used twice, but also because the verb tenses are different. Paul speaks uh, firstly about having been rescued in the past and then he will be rescued in the future. And I think there are actually different kinds of rescue. So if you look at the first kind, he says, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. It's a metaphor Right? There's no Daniel in the lion's den for Paul, but he was in a lot of situations like that. A lot of very difficult, trying, uh, crisis situations. People are always trying to kill Paul, trying to beat Paul, trying to arrest Paul. There's a lot of times where, where God actually literally physically rescued him. And, and he's looking back. And it's tough to tell, you know, exactly what time he's talking about because there's a lot of them. Uh, but there is one time that I think matches up uh, in the book of Acts. So I'll, I'll, Acts 21, uh, 22 and 23, uh, I'll just tell you, it's when Paul goes to Jerusalem. Uh, he, like he always does, wants to preach the gospel, wants to bring the good news uh, to the Jewish people there, in particular to the Jewish leaders wants to try to uh, argue with them and convince them that Jesus is actually the Messiah. Some believe, but many don't. Uh, the, the Jewish leaders in particular are very irritated, very antagonistic towards Paul. And so as you read through chapter 21 and 22 of uh, Acts, you see them uh, actively sort of pushing back against him to the point where they want to uh, uh, take him and they want to kill him. They're, they're sick and tired of him. And there's this whole sequence of events that happens. They try to drag him off and kill him. The Romans get involved because there's this big you know, problem near the temple. And they, they try to figure out what's going on. And they want to beat him to try to figure out what's true. And so they put him in jail. And then they take him out of jail again. And they bring him in front of the authorities. And he gets beaten some more. And then he gets put back in jail. There's like this 24 hours of him just getting pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. The whole time he's trying to tell people about Jesus. You can just imagine him just in a bloody mess in this Roman barracks, and this is the verse that we get that I, that I think is connected. Acts uh, 23, verse 11. The following night, after all this, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, 
so you must testify also in Rome. And that language is very similar, isn't it? The, the Lord stood by him, and in our text it says the same thing, the Lord stood by me. See, there were many times in Paul's life and ministry where, where Jesus actually did rescue him. Like, like this point in Acts, the next verse is uh, like they wanted to kill him. They were plotting to kill him. And somehow God rescued him, saved him, and wasn't killed. Why? Because of what Jesus said in that verse. Take courage. Just as you've testified about me here in Jerusalem to the Jews, I want you to go to Rome. He didn't tell him exactly how, but he's in chains, but he's still testifying. He's still being faithful. The opportunity is there. And so Paul is saying in our text, uh, look, this happened. I was strengthened. The Lord stood by me that the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul was being faithful. He's saying, look, Jesus actually did rescue me time and again, circumstantially, physically, praise Jesus. But I don't think that's what he's, that's his expectation for the future. Okay, both happen. Like, I mean, there are times where God rescues us miraculously, physically, whatever it might be, the circumstances of our lives. But I don't think that Paul is expecting to be rescued from this prison because he's writing to Timothy and saying, it's the time for my departure is near. I've finished the race. I've run the race. You get the sense that he knows that, that he's not getting out of this one. And yet... And yet he writes, the Lord will rescue me. So what kind of, what kind of rescue is he talking about? The, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and oh, bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the key. See, this rescue is not a physical rescue. It's a spiritual, eternal rescue that Paul is talking about. What, what he's saying is, I have confidence. I have confidence that there is a... There is a threat going on here, an evil that's going on here that I will be rescued from. And the thing that we need to understand is that there are layers of evil going on in Paul's life. He's been put in jail unjustly. He's been beaten. He, he is gonna be killed. But that's only the surface layer of evil, that the threat is very circumstantial. Why? Because it's only his body, right? His body is beaten. His body is killed, right? That, that's not the big deal. The greater threat is the threat to his soul. That Paul is concerned that there in that dungeon that he might abandon the faith, that he might turn his back on Jesus. And his confidence is that Jesus will rescue him from that evil. So, so why do I say it that way? Right? Why would I look at this and think that, that, that those are the layers that's going on? Well, it's because that's how Jesus speaks about the trials in our life. If you remember when he's uh, speaking to Peter, Simon Peter, and he's saying to him, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times, that, that whole thing. Do you remember what he says to Simon? Here it is in Luke twenty two thirty one. 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Right? Jesus didn't pray about the circumstances of his life, the, the, the challenge, he prayed that his faith, that's the key. Because he knew what was going to happen to Peter was really a trial, a temptation of his own faith. When the servant girl comes up to him, says to Peter, hey, don't you know that guy, Jesus? Peter denies Christ, not once, not twice, three times. The real temptation there is that Peter would feel such shame that he would turn away from Jesus and never return. That, that he would abandon his faith. And Jesus says, that's exactly what Satan wants to happen for you, Simon Peter. That's the sifting. 
right? Sifting is when you separate two things, right? The, the, the chaff from the, the grain. You separate things out. And what Satan wants in that trial for Peter is that at the end of the trial, Peter's in one place and the faith is in another. And Jesus is saying, I'm praying for you that that would not happen because that is the issue, that your faith would remain strong, that you would not be separated. And for Paul, it's the same danger. And Paul is saying, there's an evil that is intended for me, and yet Christ is going to carry me safely into his kingdom, that I would be faithful to the end. What we need to understand is that in all of the trials of our life, this is the issue. This is the temptation, the challenge, the danger is that we might come to a place of saying, it's too much, it's too hard. God, I know you say you love me, but this is happening and, and I can't take it and we might turn. And the real danger, the, the complexity of it is that it's not just afflictions from outside of us, it's our own heart that is part of the problem. That there's an evil within us. That, that our own sin would bring us to the point of believing lies and abandoning our faith. And so we need someone who can rescue us, not just from the trials out there, but from the, the danger within. And there is only one who can do it. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, the one who could do it and the one who was willing to do it, who wanted to do it. And Paul makes very clear all over the place, but I'm gonna take you to one one part in Romans where he writes exactly what the rescue looked like. The depth of it, the wonder of it, the beauty of it. Here's Romans 5, 6 to 9. He says, for a while we were still weak, right? Notice, it's us. We're, we're part of the problem. We're weak. We're not, we're not longing for Christ. We're running in the other direction. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That is the rescue. The rescue from what? It's a spiritual rescue, primarily. That is the greatest battle, the greatest danger is that we would, in our sin, come to experience the righteous judgment of God because we haven't, we haven't said yes to Jesus and we're running in the other direction and, and we're, we're heading off a cliff and we don't even know it and yet the hope of the gospel is that God will save us in spite of ourselves. That his depth of love, his willingness to sacrifice even when we wanted nothing to do with it. And this is what Paul is, is writing about here. That Paul has confidence that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, everything that might be done to him and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And so even though Paul is in a deep, dark dungeon and he knows every day from now till his end will just be filled with starvation and cold and deprivation, what, what is his, his line there? His natural response is what? To him, to him be the glory forever and ever, Amen. Why? Because that is always the response of faith, regardless of circumstances, that we trust Jesus in it, that he is sustaining us, and that what comes over our lips is, Jesus, I don't deserve any of it. Praise you. Praise you for what you've done. Praise you for the faith that you would have given me and the hope that I have. So the application for us, the thing that we should be thinking of and realizing is this, there, there is a greater danger in the trials of our lives than we usually are aware of we tend just to look on the surface. 
Okay, the greatest danger of our lives is not just that we might get sick or that someone we know or love might get sick or that we might uh, fail in some grievous way, that our relationship might fail, that financially we might become destitute. It, it's not any of the things that we spend most of our time thinking about. And even when things go bad, we tend just to focus more on those things. What we see here in Paul is that there's a layer beneath that that is far more important, and that is a layer of faith. Are we going to believe that God is for us in the midst of this trial? Are we going to believe that Jesus can carry us through to the end, even though in this moment our body is failing, our finances are failing, or whatever else it may be? Are we going to hold fast to Christ by his strength? That, that is the real danger. That is the real trial. And what we see here from Paul is that we can. We can be confident. We, we can be sustained in the trials of life by the power and the grace of God. So these are the questions we should be thinking. Do we actually believe that God is for us? Do we believe that he will rescue us, that he will bring us safely into his kingdom? And do we believe that in the darkest times of our lives that Christ is actually with us? That's one of the most beautiful things that I think about this passage is, verse, is the, the 16, 17 shift Paul says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. Right? All the people deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. That means that he, he experienced the presence of Christ as he was standing there before the Roman tribunal, that Jesus was actually doing what he said he would do. Right Before he left, what did he say? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm sending you my spirit. Right? God himself in us, manifesting the presence of Christ so that at any given moment when we feel the, the temptation to think that we have been abandoned, maybe we have been by all the people in our life, but we should never believe the lie that Jesus has abandoned us because he never will. He never has. This is the encouragement we get from, from, from Paul that we all need a rescuer and we have one one that is not distant, right? It's not like a paramedic. It's like somebody just comes in, saves us, pays our bail, pays our fine and leaves. He's a friend. He's a counselor. He's a guide. He loves us. I wanted to leave you with one kind of final image of this, uh, one that I heard recently in a really, really compelling way uh, from a man that I, I knew in my younger years, early on in my faith. Uh, his name was Bob Davies. Uh, Bob Davies, um, if you know him, is from Willingdon. It's where I came to faith. And uh, sadly, Bob uh, passed away a, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he was someone that I got to know because I was uh, friends with his youngest daughter, Coralie. We were in youth group together. Uh, Shelly is part of our church. That's his oldest daughter. And so I've known kind of Bob uh, on and off throughout the years and really had wanted to go to the funeral. I wasn't able to, but Shelly sent me the, the link so I could watch the whole thing. It was so encouraging. Uh, Bob was a man who was full of love for the Lord and full of love for people. He was one of those guys that when you got into conversation, he was just all there for you, wanted to know everything about you and really wanted for you to know the hope that he had in Christ. He was so active in the church, so full of energy. I think they said he led like 46 uh, missions trips over his years. I think he was in his 80s. I went on one of them. I went with him to Mexico. Just, just so inspiring, so encouraging. 
But one of the things that stuck out that I thought kind of connected with, with Paul here was um, near the end, so like the day before that uh, Bob died, he was asked to share his testimony at one of the, the groups at, at church, and someone had videotaped it. So they're able to, to get a window kind of in some of the last things that Bob said, a lot like what Paul is saying here. And what Bob did was basically tell how God had worked in his life, right? His, his, his testimony, how God had ministered to him. And there's, there's one part he tells of his conversion. He got, really came, uh, to, had a powerful experience with, with Christ uh, when he was at a very low point in his life. Uh, he was injured. I think he'd broken both of his legs, if I remember the story correctly. He was in hospital for a long time, feeling very low, very, very in despair. And there was something in him that prompted him to begin to pray prayers of thanksgiving. He said, like, early in the morning hours, I'm just going to start praying, thanking God, thanking God for the friends that visited me, thanking God for my family. And he, was, he felt interrupted by God. And, and I want to just, I, I wrote down what he said. You can see these, are, these were some of Bob's last words. He said, in a moment, in that hospital room, I went from the lowest experience I've ever had in my life to the highest experience I've ever had. It it was like the very presence and glory of God came down and flooded the hospital room. I laid there in the glory of the Lord in the presence of Jesus. I had everything I wanted to ask for, and I hadn't asked for it yet. Isn't that amazing? How God knows our hearts and he knows what we need and he meets us in our needs. Thank you, Lord. He is so gracious. And Bob went on to say, like, he was so filled with excitement. He wanted to go tell everyone, but it was like three in the morning, so he didn't want to wake everyone up. But that was his excitement. That was his experience. And it struck me that that is what Paul is saying too. Look at the last line, right? The grace of God. Paul says, the Lord be with you in spirit. Grace be with you. Here was a man who had had such trials and adversity in his life when he followed where Jesus told him to go. And yet, what are his final words? There's grace for you in Christ. You can be filled. I love what Bob said. We we get even what we didn't even know we needed before we even asked for it. That's the gospel. That all of us who've come to Christ have not been in our minds and our own wisdom thinking, look, we need everything that you have. Most of us have been going in the other direction. Right, totally blinded by our own sin, by the things of this world, and yet God has reached out to us in grace, turned us around, and given us everything that we don't deserve. What a beautiful picture of the truths of the gospel, but also a beautiful picture of the presence of God. That's what Paul experienced. That's what Bob experienced. And that's what every one of us, hear me, we should expect to experience that. That especially in our trials, especially in our difficulties, that as we turn to the Lord in prayer, that we should expect to experience the presence of God through his spirit, through his word, ministering to us. Why? Because he, he actually really loves us. He's for us. He's our rescuer. He's our redeemer. And he's our friend. So I'd like to close just by encouraging us. Wherever we may be, it may be a very dark time right now. It may not be. But for us to come to the place of of being sustained in our faith, relationally, spiritually, and knowing that Christ is the one from whom all blessings flow. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for your grace in our lives. So thankful for for the Apostle Paul and for his life and his ministry and for all the ways that you've used him over over the centuries in the church. That, that in this man we saw, we see pictured 
both the, the, the depth of our own sin and yet the, what happens when we open ourselves up, when you, you intervene, you, you halt us on our road headed towards a certain destruction and you save us and you redeem us and you use us for your good purposes. And so Lord, I pray that we would have that picture in our mind and that we would see in Paul a man who, who leaned in to the relationships that he had because he invested in people. And Lord, may that be true of us. May we not be... Um, hard-hearted or, or have short fuses or be reluctant when it comes to reconciling God, may we, may we see the, the beauty in showing forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. And Lord, may there be people in our lives right now that, that we can go back to and restore our relationship and they will be there for us in the end. And I pray all the more, Lord, because of the sustaining power of Christ. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are in a, a deep, dark, difficult time, may we not believe the lie that we are alone. For Jesus, you make very clear, you are with us. And not only are you with us, you are our rescuer. You are a very present help in time of need. And so give us the strength. Lord, preserve our faith. May we not be so pressured that we would be sifted and to be separated from it, but may we cling to it by your power and by your grace so that we might honor you and be able to worship you and so that we might be a testimony to who you are and the life you bring. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.